0: It's hard to believe that we are at the end of our series entitled Upside Down Kingdom. Um, this is the 28th message in that series that we actually divided into smaller sermon suites, what we called sermon suites, and we had it organized by a different subject, but we're actually coming to the very end of this series. Uh, we'll be going into another series of the 1st of June entitled The Flawed Fighter. You've seen some of the previews probably for that. We're looking at the Samson in the book of Judges. We'll be going into his life and examining and dissecting that for the month of June. And uh, uh, But that is in June. Right now we're going to finish off this series, and it's been on the Sermon on the Mount, and looking at the Sermon on the Mount and seeing how Jesus is uh, giving, in essence, his inaugural address on how uh, his kingdom is going to work, and how those who are citizens of that kingdom are to behave. And we've called it the already-not-yet paradigm. And what that means is is that the kingdom of God was inaugurated in the person of Christ. Uh, when Christ said uh, he was talking and they accused him of casting out demons, and he said, if I cast demons out by the finger of God, then know that the kingdom of God is among you. Meaning that he himself is the embodiment of God's kingdom that starts in him, But the consummation of that kingdom will not come until He comes again to set up His kingdom on earth, and that will be the fullest expression of that kingdom. But while we are in this in this uh, time between, as we've called it, it, theologians call it, is we are to be living as citizens of this heavenly kingdom, as Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, and He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our Sovereign, the one that we are to organize our life by. And so we've been looking um, for the past several weeks on what it means to live as a citizen in this kingdom, on how, what type of attitudes that we're to have, what are our affections to be like, what about our actions, and then our aspirations. What are we to aspire to? What does God want from us? And now we are, we are coming in, the airplane is... His landing on the runway, and we are taxiing, and we're getting our last instructions, and it's a bit of warning. It's a warning of what are you going to do with the information that I am giving you, or I have given you. Are you going to receive it, or are you going to reject it? And then he provides a dramatic illustration to what happens to those who receive it, and those who reject it. And in essence, it is a warning. Now, living in the Midwest, we're used to... Tornado warnings, are we not? Sirens, things like that. I remember when my wife and I, when we were first married, we were debating on like where would we want to live. Now, my wife is from South Florida, and she grew up with hurricanes, and I'm from Central Illinois, and we grew up with tornadoes, and we were debating on which is worse. Which is worse? And I said, when you I said when we have a tornado, it doesn't cover the entire state. And she goes, yes, that's true, but when a hurricane is coming, you have a lot of time to prepare and leave. In the Midwest, you don't know when a tornado is going to happen. You've got five, ten minutes, and, and you know that when the conditions are there, but it could just strike just like that. And that's why we have these early morning, the warning systems. And I remember driving with my wife. It was so much fun when we were, we just married, and she'd never lived in cold weather before, and she would ask questions that I was surprised at, and I would ask her questions that she was like, are you kidding? I mean, I, I remember asking her when I first met her, I said, you're from Florida, right? And she said, yes, and I said, uh, do you have a pool? And she went, yeah, and I said, is it above ground or underground? Okay, it's a Midwest thing, right? She's like, who has an overground pool? And I'm like, uh, everyone I know. But when she came here and she saw these trucks and she was astonished, she goes, what is that truck? What is that truck? What is it? What's on the front of the truck? I'm like, that's a snowplow." <laughs> She'd never seen one before. She had no idea what it was. And then she saw these big poles with speakers on them. She goes, what are that? I said, that's the early warning system. It's a tornado alert. When you hear those alarms go off, you need to get to, sh- you need to, get to safety. So she was a little bit astonished and shocked by that. And I said, they're there for a reason. They're there to protect and save lives. And we've seen what a tornado can do. Can it be devastating? Think about what happened around Peoria. Think about what happened in Joplin, Missouri. We see it in the news. This is the tornado season, and we hear these alerts go off. But what happens if you hear the alert, you don't respond? See, that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, here's the alert. What are you going to do? And let me tell you, if you avoid this, disaster is... Eminent. This is what's going to happen. So he's sounding the alert to our lives, and he is speaking to us because I don't believe that he wants us to suffer. He wants us to obey and enjoy the truth of who he is and prepare for it. So that's what we're going to look at today. How can we apply this to our life? What does God want from us? And what are we to to do with this message? And how do we apply it to our lives? And what will happen if we really do ignore his word? So let's take a moment, pause, ask for his blessing on our time together. Our Father and our God, we come before you and we ask that you speak to our hearts. That you might remove the layers of unbelief that have covered our hearts that have kept us from seeing you in all of your fullness and all of your glory. And Lord, may we have open ears, open minds, but may our heart most of all be open and receptive to what it is that you have for us. Because we know that if we follow your word and your truth, our lives will be blessed and secure. But if we avoid it, Lord, we're taking our life into our own hands. So we thank you for this, this sermon on the mount that you've given unto us, that you've spoken so clearly about who you are and what it is that you desire from us and how we might delight and find joy in you. So Lord, please speak to us today that we might increase in joy, that we might forsake sin, that we might experience a life of blessing in your sight. We ask your, we ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's jump right in in verse 24. Now, if you have a Pew Bible, we are on eight, page 812. But I want us to jump in on Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. And I want to examine this piece by piece. The Holy Spirit is writing through Matthew, and he says, Everyone who hears these words, now Jesus is speaking, obviously, Matthew's recording this, excuse me, these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Now, everyone, he's speaking to the crowd all the crowds that had come to hear him. Now the disciples are there, the greater crowds are there, and he has this sermon that he has been speaking. We, we don't have any record of any dialogue. There are no questions being asked from the, the audience. They're hearing him, and he's saying that all of you that are here, that hear my word and apply to your life, is akin to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And if you hear it and don't do it, Then you're like a a foolish man who's building his house on the sand. And what he's saying there is right now you have a choice. I want you to choose wisely. And if we are to experience all that God has for us in Christ, the first thing that we have to make sure that we are doing is choosing wisely. Choosing wisely. That's the first point that I want you to write down. If we are to experience all that God has for us in Christ, then it requires us choosing wisely. And the choice is before us. It's before us right now, and it's before us each and every day. What way are we going to choose to live in our lives? Are we going to choose to believe what God has for us all in Christ? Or are we going to choose to reject it? But we need to choose wisely. Now, what does this choice have? What is Jesus saying in this summation passage? He's saying that this choice involves, first of all, a person we must believe. A person we must believe in. He's, a, he's likening himself to the rock that they would build down. And they would sometimes have to dig through 10 feet of sand to get down into the bedrock. And he's saying, that's me. And that's the, are you going to believe who I am? That I am the Christ. Are you going to put your hope in me? Now, I, I'm a uh, kind of a cultural watcher. And I remember in the election, um, the, the, the election when uh, Barack Obama was first running, and uh, I, I remember the poster that came out, I don't know if you remember it, it was pretty, um, it's hard to forget it, but it had his face, and it was in red, white, and blue, and it said, hope, just hope emblazoned across the front of it. Now, and, and in some ways, I, I celebrate that, because of what he came from, uh, it shows the racial diversity, that those who are uh, coming from a, a people that has been uh, oppressed and marginalized and put down, and that there's hope that you can overcome the greatest of obstacles and become the, and, and be in the greatest office in the United States of America. That's something to celebrate, to see what he has overcome, and that he is in some ways the voice of a people, and, and not just of one people, of many people. That is great hope, and, and that I celebrate that that we can have a country that can, that can do that. But at the same time, people put their hope in him to right all the wrongs in the world. And that is where I depart. Because I, I don't see that. I don't see a politician being able to solve all of our problems and all of our ills. As a matter of fact, I've seen more in some ways caused by different politicians, not just him, but all politicians. White, red, black, I don't care. You put your hope in a politician, then you're going to find yourself very, very frustrated. As a matter of fact, I saw a special this past week. Actually, it was a movie uh, called The Emperor. It has Tommy Lee Jones in it, Matthew Fox. And it's about um, reconstruction of Japan after World War II. And Matthew Fox's character had fallen in love with this Japanese girl when he was in college. And and he makes his way to Japan uh, before the war when he is a colonel. And he is interacting with her uncle, I believe her father, who is an officer in the Japanese army. Now this is before the war breaks out. And he's doing a, kind of writing a paper. He's a very smart man. And he says, can you tell me about the mind of the Japanese soldier? And he says, the mind of a Japanese soldier is different than the mind of an American soldier. Because he is absolutely devoted to a set of ideals and virtues um, that come from the emperor. And that if we were to ever go to war with America, we would win because we follow the emperor's divine will. Now, the divine will is not by accident because in Japanese Shinto religion, the emperor is considered to be a god. And so they looked at the emperor as a god among men. That he was a descendant of one of the deities of the Shinto religion, uh, amartrusa I believe. I probably butchered the pronunciation, but um, he's a descendant. And after the war, Matthew Fox's character comes and encounters this man again. Now, he is broken. They have lost the war, and he is humbled. And he talks about how Japanese soldiers were a, um, capable of great sacrifice, but they were also in. in Committing this great sacrifice, they had forsake their humanity um, in the pursuit of his divine, the emperor's divine well. And now he realizes that the emperor is not divine, that he is not God, that he is a flawed man. And fortunately, the emperor of Japan then relinquished his status as a god. Now, why do I share that with you? It's because we have a tendency to put our hope in heroes, we project onto heroes. That's why you have so many hero TV shows and movies. Captain America, the Avengers, all these people, they embody the ideals of what we want to be like Often, very often. But the problem that we find is that they're very human. And we have to be careful where we put our hope and who we put it in. And Jesus is saying here, you hope in me, in me alone, not your image of me. But the true me, the, the, the Jesus of the Bible, we have a tendency to build up um, and put Jesus in, and make him look different than what he really is. We have to go back to the scripture, cut through all of the, the cultural trappings, and look at the Jesus of the Bible. And all of his glory, and all of his love, all of his compassion and wrath. And that's who we, we believe in. He's a person to believe in. When people say, oh, you know, you see, Jesus is this very weak, always petting sheep. He's always petting sheep. Okay? And it's like, yes, there's that Jesus who's loving. There's also the Jesus who picked up a whip of cords and drove people out of the temple. The Jesus that picked and turned over tables. Then there's the Jesus who shows up in Revelation in his full deity. The tattooed Jesus on a horse with a sword. Tattoo on his leg, it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then and a name that only he knows, that God the Father has placed on him. We have to understand this person that we believe in, that he is the Christ, the one true Son of God. We have to be very careful, because what we believe in will indicate the life we live. A.W. Tozer, a great man of God, said, What I believe about God is the most important thing about me. It's very true because our life will then reflect that. Will reflect that. And our our no religion has ever risen above their thought or conceptions of God. That will be easily shown at any study of history. Study Islam, study Hinduism, study Buddhism or Jainism or Taoism. Study the different philosophies of the East. Even those that do not believe in a God have still a conception of what is greater. But here Jesus is showing himself to be the giver and Lord of life. As a matter of fact, those who heard him are astonished at his teaching because he didn't talk like the scribes, according to verse 29, but is one who had authority in such a way that they they couldn't believe it. They were blown away. We have to understand that he has given us a person to believe in, and that is himself. He is the rock. Next, we also have to understand that he has given us a path, a path that we must follow. Notice verse 24 again. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does what with them? just hearing the word? Is that good? He heard preaching? They participated in church? What is it? What's it say in the text? He does them, right? Hears these words of mine and does them. It's the understanding of a path to follow. You know it's interesting, when Christianity was first coming out, the Romans didn't know what to do with it. It wasn't a separate religion from Judaism. It was a part of it, considered a sect of Judaism. And it was called, it had a certain designation. It was called the way. They were followers of the way. The understanding of way means movement, progression, life. We have separated this so often in modern Christianity, and we just think of the name. I'm a Christian. No, you're a Christian when you are showing it by your life. It's confessing the Christ, believing in your heart, which is shown in your action. It's a path we must follow. That's what he's showing us. These are the words of life. When you not only hear these words of mine, but does them. So we must make sure that we are, we are doing them. It's a, uh, a person to believe in, a path to follow. And wor- Jesus' words are meant to help us in, the, in preparation for what is to come. Preparation for what is to come. Now, we don't know what we're going to face in life. What struggles what, how we're going to suffer. We don't know what all of the things that we're going to be dealing with. could be dealing with the loss of a child, loss of a parent suddenly. could be a health report for ourselves. It, it could be getting fired from work. It, it could be anything. We have no idea what is going to happen to us in the future. And Jesus is saying that there are storms that are going to come, and he's using this illustration And this illustration has two different kind of emphasis. Scholars actually see two different kind of senses, and some scholars are divided, some see both. But uh, what you see here is one is a a temporal understanding of calamity or a storm that's going to come, and then there's the one that's eschatological, meaning that it's going to come at the end of time. Now, I think the end of time is probably a greater sense of what he's referring to, because he just spoke in the verses directly preceding this about um, those who come to him at the end of time and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. It's referring to judgment. But I I think that this can have that sense of judgment and uh, in the end time, eschatology is the study of the end times. But I also think there is an understanding of temporality, meaning that we are going to experience calamities in life. And what happens when we experience calamities? What happens when you suffer? I like what David said when he was talking up here. He says, we, when we, we go through hard times, it has a tendency to reveal where our faith really is and what we really have faith in and what we truly believe in. And he is preparing for us what is to come. I have a passage I want you to turn with me. I don't have it on the board, but Romans chapter 5. It's in the New Testament. I'm sorry, I don't have a page number for you, but it's in the uh, New Testament, Romans chapter 5. If you're not that familiar with the scriptures, you can look it up in the table of contents. It's okay. I won't tell. But Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5, the Holy Spirit is speaking uh, through the Apostle Paul. And he writes in verse 3, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given unto us. See, God has a way of using suffering to show us who we really are and what we truly believe. That's in some ways why children have a harder time. I mean, children can grasp the elements of the gospel. They don't necessarily get the depth of it. And it doesn't really become real to them until they struggle, until they suffer, until they experience a hardship. And then it takes on a new meaning a new depth in their life, and the roots go down even deeper when they see the reality of sin in their own heart, when they see situations that they face. And and we realize that experience is one of the best teachers there is, but she's a brutal teacher. (laughs) But you learn. Oh, do you learn. So here it's showing that Jesus is preparing us, that there's rains are going to come, And they're going to wash away the foundation of what we hope in if it's not in Christ. It's going to wash everything else away. It doesn't matter whatever religion, whatever philosophy or teacher that you follow. It will be washed away if it's not of Christ. Not of Christ. So we must make sure that we are depending solely upon him. And when these circumstances come that cause us to question, I mean, is it going to have it wash away? our hope in Christ. I'm reminded of Charles Templeton. Anyone in here ever heard of Charles Templeton? Charles Templeton, probably not. Um, he was an evangelist. Started in the 1940s, and he was part of a tag team with a guy you've probably heard of. His name is Billy Graham. And he is, was a Canadian guy, was a better speaker than Graham, drew bigger audiences than Graham. He had no theological education, barely made it through high, I mean, uh, didn't finish high school, but he was very smart man, very naturally talented, and this lack of education really dogged him. So he, as he kept the ministry crypt growing, he says, I need more education. And finally, he decided to go to Princeton Theological Seminary, where at the time, there were professors there who didn't believe in the gospel. And yet he's going to these guys to get questions for his life from people who do not believe. And he starts questioning a lot of things about God and the Bible, while Billy starts getting more and more answers and believes that the Bible is the Word of God, this man questions more and more. And finally, he's being led into agnosticism, uh, believes that you can never know, and he he settles on agnosticism after looking at a magazine. Magazines have power. It's Life magazine. And on the cover of Life magazine was an African woman holding her baby that had just died because of a famine. And the the baby died because there was no water. And he said to himself, I cannot believe in a God who would not save this baby by just sending rain. God does not exist. Now, my thought to that and response to that is, is this. All of us, believers and unbelievers alike, experience calamity and trials. Every one of us. It's a natural part of being in this fallen world. Secondly, could not God be using that opportunity to touch your heart to go and embody the kingdom of God to that people by providing water for them? See, sometimes God allows sufferings in our life to show the reality of our faith and to cause us to care about things as much as God does in His heart. Do you think it doesn't break His heart to see these things, these sufferings and things going on in the world? I watched a special yesterday that broke my heart. It was on... um, Medical care for women in Afghanistan it was in my Netflix queue, probably not in yours, but it was in mine. And what bothered me about it were these women who have access to no medical care. One woman was experiencing a, a very difficult pregnancy, and they take her to the, the, uh, one of the religious schools, and the teacher there thought she was possessed, so they beat her, and she lost her baby because they were trying to drive the demon out. Another woman who was experiencing pain and they'd taken her by days to get to this one medical doctor who came from the United States to help these women in a very horrible condition and found out that she was pregnant with twins and that one of the babies had died. So he delivered this baby, then delivered the other one. There's no, pre, no neonatal. There's no NICU. There's nothing to help these babies. And you see this little baby and lives for they have to feed it with a spoon and milk. And then two days, the baby dies. And they're showing the child my heart broke, and I went, how can we as Christians go help that? Because, see, when I see suffering like that, God's heartbeat is for us to help alleviate suffering and embody the kingdom of God by giving hope to others, by showing the love of Christ, by leaving and by, by serving, by sacrificing ourselves, and showing that Jesus is the Christ, that he laid down his life for us. We lay our, down our lives. We die to ourselves. And that we help others in their suffering. We go to the farthest reaches of the world. We go to the Afghanistans and the Pakistans and the Indias and the Bhutan. We go to the farthest reaches of the land to show the hope of Christ that is within us. That they might see the light of Christ. That they too might be saved. That we might help and minister to their temporal needs. But in greater way to show them their eternal need. That they need Christ. They need to be reconciled to God. So he is preparing us for what is to come, and he's doing a work within us. And we understand when the floods come and all of these difficulties come and stresses come, that it removes all that which is not of Christ, but shows us truly where our hope is. And we're to embody the hope of Christ and reach out and show to a lost world. Now let's get back to our text. Jesus' words act as a warning to what will happen if we neglect his teaching, if we fail to apply his words and organize our life for his glory. It is then imperative. If we are to experience the blessing of God, then we need to make sure that we are heeding his warning. Heeding his warning. Now, as I said before, there are two senses to this passage, one temporal and one eternal. Eternal. We just looked at the temporal one, but now we need to look at the eternal one, especially when we consider the verses directly preceding the passage. As I mentioned before, in verse 21, if you just look back a couple of verses, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, he's referring to Judgment Day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then one, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we can see then that this, this warning involves certain calamity. Certain calamity. Now, He's talking about the rains that will come. Inevitably, in life, we will encounter calamities, just as the one Jesus refers to in verse 25. And what he's referring to here, he's showing that Israel, though it's a desert, they have these wadis, these dry ravines. Um, and there are, you don't get a lot of rainfall, but there are times during the rainy season where rain will come in torrents and will take these dry wadis and literally turn them into rushing rivers, and you'll have flowers bloom overnight. It's just such a major transformation. Now, when you are building a house on a sand, he's saying that these rushing waters are going to come, and they're going to wash all of that away. And that foundation is going to just go away. I was uh, reading and doing some research, and I found this one architectural blunder where they literally took the foundation away, and they put it by a river, and it actually caused the river to flood and go back to the building. And then the building, the foundation washed away, and the building just went... Literally, the whole building just fell over like a child's thing of Legos. Because the foundation was washed away. See, the building could be all great. I mean, you could have all these great materials on top of it. But if the foundation is wrong? I mean, and we know people that have moral lives that are great, but they don't follow Jesus. They don't have that foundation right. Then they're going to collapse when it comes to the judgment day. We have to have Jesus at our foundation, and this calamity referring to God's judgment that is going to come. Matter of fact, we can see throughout scriptures that God sometimes refers to his judgment coming as a storm. Isaiah chapter 28, uh, 16 through 17, Ezekiel chapter 13, 10 through 13, refers to the day of the Lord or come as a coming storm that will wash everything that is not of him away. God's judgment is going to come. It will be unexpected, it will be fierce, and it will be final. Just like the rains will come and wash away all that which was not done for Christ, just as in Noah's day, he was preparing for the storm. The people who, were, who did not believe did not go into the ark, but only those who did believe had, in essence, God as their foundation, and they were the ones that were saved. Now, not only is this judgment or this calamity coming, but to reject it means suffering colossal consequences. Colossal consequences. The buildings built by the foolish men and the wise man undoubtedly look similar, but the difference, as I mentioned before, was completely in the foundation. The foundation. Now, if we neglect, we're not only just hurting ourselves, we could be hurting other people. I think about the wise men, and I think about the foolish men, and Jesus doesn't give us a lot of information. He's just using it as an illustration, but I do wonder... Were these men married? If that was the case, what happened to their families? See, if the foundation was off, not only was the individual hurt, but the whole family was hurt as well. And if you don't have the foundation of Christ in your life and you reject it or you're living in such a way as to turn your children away from Christ, they will be affected as well. And you could end up, in essence, in some ways, leading them to damnation. It has colossal consequences to reject this. Now, you might say to yourself, I don't have Christ as my foundation, but I want it. I mean, maybe many of us here today are living in such a way that we um, are not building. We might have Christ as a foundation, but we might be building wrong. You know, you can do that as well. There's deeds that we can do in the flesh and deeds that we can do in the spirit. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you have a pew Bible, that's page 953. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul, by the Spirit says in First Corinthians three ten through fifteen, he says according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how much, how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. See, he's contrasting the different materials used in the building of the temple. He's saying that there are those works that we do when we're in the spirit of Christ that are gold, silver, and precious stones. But then there's the other acts that we do when we're in the flesh that are wood, hay and straw, and the day of judgment will burn those things up, but only that which is done for Christ will last. So in essence, we not only need to get the foundation right, we need to make sure that we're building right by living and doing ministry in the Spirit of God. Doing ministry in the Spirit of God. Now, if we say, I haven't been doing that, well, see, this is where we have to stop. See, if we're looking at a building, and I don't know if you've ever seen this or not, but a building project gets started, and they realize the foundation is wrong, you have one of two options in front of you. You either can keep building on it, knowing that you could be leading to disaster later, which have some, some people do. They don't want to take a bath on it. They're taking a risk. They're saying the foundation might be off, but maybe we can supplement it. Maybe we can do something to keep it going, and the building will survive for a time. Or you can say, let's strip it down. Let's build it someplace else. Let's, well, let's get back and redo the foundation all over again. it might cost a lot of money, and it might take time, but the end result will be much better. So we need to understand that what God is saying to us, what Jesus is saying to us through this passage, is that there is an opportunity to change course. Change course. That we might have to change our course, meaning that we have to go back and quit building what we were building on, and we need to build on the foundation of Christ. Now, have you ever been lost? Anyone in this room ever been lost? Every man needs to raise his hand right now. Okay. Um, I know one man, he goes, I'm not lost. I know where I am. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. But I, I don't know if we've, have you ever had a GPS get you lost? GPSs aren't the most trustable, trustable thing in the world, right? There's a story of a 67-year-old woman named Sabine Moreau. She's from Belgium, and she started uh, her journey in her hometown of Belgium, and she wanted to pick up a friend at a train station in Brussels, which was just 93 miles north of, from her point of origin. But instead, she turned on her GPS, which told her to drive south instead, taking her turn by turn all the way down to Zagreb in Croatia. Now, if you're not familiar with geography, let me say that there are eight countries between her hometown and Zagreb. Okay, she was supposed to be picking up a friend in Brussels, Belgium, in her home country, and now she has crossed through eight countries Um, and instead of a couple hours in the car, she spent a couple of days to cover the 900 miles that separates both points in Europe. Now, during Sabine's odyssey, she stopped two times to get gas, slept for a few hours on the side of the road, and even suffered a minor car accident. Now, she knows it sounds weird, but she was distracted, she said. I was distracted, so I kept driving. I saw saw all kinds of traffic signs, first in French, then German, and finally in Croatian, but I kept driving because I was distracted. Suddenly, I appeared in Zagreb, and I realized I wasn't in Belgium anymore. Now, see, I think many people are just like her. In that, they're distracted by life, and they're following a source that's not... The true source. They're organizing their life, not realizing that there's signs on the way that said your life is not going the way you expected it to go. Warning, warning, turn around. You got to think about what's the authority? Where am I placing my faith in? How am I organizing and living my life? Where am I, what am I following? And you may not realize it until you get to hell and you go, this was not what I expected. I was led astray. See, Jesus is saying that if you you apply his words, if you hear and do his words, you don't have to worry about it. You're going to get to your destination. But if you reject it, it has disastrous consequences. And when you see those warning signs, it's time to change course, to turn around, to stop and say, where am I? What is going on? What must I do? Some of us here, we are headed the wrong way. We're distracted by all the things going on around us and listening to the wrong voices. The signs are there, and all we need to do is change course. But are we going to listen? Now let's get back to our text. Notice what Jesus says in verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. One can hear and not do. Did you realize that? Anyone who's a parent knows this. Have you ever told your children something and say, do this, and they go, yep, and they don't do it? All the time. It happens all the time. See, God is saying to us now, don't just hear me and not do what I'm asking you to do. Hear and do. And we must make sure then that we are doing what he says, and that means following his way. Following His way. That's the next point I want you to write down. Number three, following His way. Hearing His words and doing them. That's what He wants. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Giving Him our heart and then following Him wholeheartedly. Now, following Him is multifaceted. Let's look at verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. Now, it's interesting how that word astonished, it means amazed, blown away. They, They were... ah walking away going, wow, that was amazing. I mean, have you ever gone away from a sermon and said, that was amazing? You better say yes. <laughs> I mean, seriously, there's times where I've, I've gone away from a message going, that was phenomenal. God just really spoke to me in, in a phenomenal way, and I'm, I'm going forth changed and transformed, and wow, and, and that's what they're doing. But here, it's interesting. They're saying that you can be amazed and not still willing to follow. You know, Benjamin Franklin was real close friends with George Whitfield, the great evangelist. George Whitfield preached to Franklin numerous times, and Franklin would go and hear um, Whitfield preach. And he was an open air preacher; he would preach outside. At the time, it was not done. Only time that preaching could be done could be in a church and in full garb. They wore robes and the wig, and that's how the preacher was to deliver the word of God. And and Whitfield would go out in all robes and he would stand up and he would preach and he would gather crowds of 10,000. He was such an amazing preacher. And Franklin, after Whitfield died, he said, Alas, George's prayer was never answered. I was never born again. And it's an indication. I can hear, you can hear great preachers some of the great orders and and men of God of our time. And yet you cannot do and not know the Christ they're preaching about and not follow His way. See, if we're to truly apply this to our lives, we have to understand what He's saying here and what this passage is showing us. Look at verse 29. For He was teaching... Then as one who had authority. Authority. There was something different about him. He wasn't like the scribes and the Pharisees who would so Rabbi Shlomo or Rabbi, Rabbi Hillel. They wouldn't they wouldn't talk about all these rabbis. Jesus was saying, No, I say to you this. And what it means for us then is this choice is ours. Are we willing to accept his authority of our life? Accept his authority. So that's what it means following his way. It means accepting his authorities. Now, we must recognize his authorities. And we we have authorities all over our life. We have people that we go to that are the authorities in our life, that we trust for certain things. I know nothing about plumbing. When my plumber comes over, he's the authority and tells me what is okay and what is not okay. And he tells me that it's not okay for my son to stick Spider-Man down the toilet or my wife's makeup which he's done, okay? But we have authorities for all different kinds of things. I have a mechanic. He's the authority on my car. He tells me about my car. I don't, I don't know that much about it. I mean, when the doctor tells me I needed to do this, he's the authority. He knows a lot more about the human body than I do. And am I going to trust that? I mean, we have authorities all the time. We have, we have, we have TV shows that we watch. Like, if I want to know about cooking, I'm going to talk to Bobby Flay. Right? I'm going to talk to Bobby Flay. If I want to know about how to make stuff out of nothing and just stuff around my house, I'm going to talk to Martha Stewart. Okay? If I want to know about um, designing the, uh, you know, greatest computer ever, I would talk to Steve Jobs. (laughs) David's booing in the back. But seriously, we have people that we look at. If I want to talk about uh, teaching or business, we have gurus, we have experts. Yet, some of us, we have experts in life, are Dr. Phil and Oprah. Those aren't good experts. We have to say, what is the authority? Am I going to trust what they're teaching me? Now, I I had a track coach one year who uh, was a brand-new teacher when I was in high school, and he was a really big guy, but he never, never, was never taught to be a coach, never studied track, could care less about track, had never run in track, but he did it because he knew he'd get a little extra in his check. So I came to see the, the practice, and all the guys are doing Tai Chi. Instead of running on the track and stretching and getting ready, and I went, I don't trust what he's teaching me about track. He has shown nothing in his life that shows that he knows what he's talking about. Now see, look at Jesus though on the other side. Jesus has shown us everything about his life to validate his teaching. Are we going to be trusting his teaching? That's the next point. Trusting his teaching, are we going to apply the word of God to our life? It's interesting that the disciples in the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching that they received from Christ. Do you trust the word of God? Do you apply? Do you read? Meditate on and apply the Word of God to your life. Or are you just going through the motions? Do you say, I don't need to read the Word? Then I'd say, you're a fool. I already know everything there is to know about it. Now you're an even bigger fool. I've been studying this Word for 20-some years, going through it every year, and I'm still learning. I still consider myself a novice. I've gone to higher education, I can tell you more about what I don't know than what I do. And I'm still blown away that God has shown himself and decides to reveal himself to me. And I trust in what he has said. After all the years I've studied, after reading the other holy books of different uh, faiths, in my limited experience, I trust in Jesus more and more, not less. Trust in his teaching. Now, I want you to to write a little C after this one, because I've added a point that's not in your notes. And it's between this point and the next point. So you're going to have to write a little line after it. It's not just trusting his teaching, but it's praying his purpose. Praying his purpose. Because Jesus' words right here is a summation of what he has spoken in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the, the greatest section, the biggest section in the entire Sermon on the Mount is devoted to the Lord's Prayer. That he's showing us that he wants us to pray. I'm convinced that as a church, we don't know how to pray very well. We're not very good at it. We get very uncomfortable when there's silence. We get bored. We don't know what to say, what to do. I was uh, in talking to uh, John Feuder, who's a professor at Moody Graduate School. He's written several books on How to Reach Your Neighborhood for Christ. He said he went to a church downtown Chicago, which is the Chicago Tabernacle, which is an uh, offshoot of the Brooklyn Tab. And he said, I'd never have experienced prayer like I did there. They know how to pray. They had cards of different requests. They're praying for the, the 200 girls that were taken in Nigeria. They're praying for requests of the people in the church. They're, they're praying for stuff in the nation and in the city. They're, they're committing themselves to pray sacrificially, giving themselves and time. Can we do that? I'm hoping that God will do that. I, I'm hoping that we can have an all-night prayer meeting. And that's not for everybody, but there's something about in the churches that I've, I've been able, and the Lord has allowed me to serve, where people come together to pray for God's blessing on the church. And and Jesus is showing us in this passage, this Sermon on the Mount, uh, in Matthew chapter 6 especially, that he desires and values us praying. And you might be new to prayer. It's okay. But I pray for those who have have been around for a long time that we can really pray and hunger for God to work, not just in our body for here, but to reach the world. And I mean that. I mean that. I, I really do mean that I think God wants us to help reach the world. All of our our campuses uniting together to have a a greater mission than just in this community, but to the world, to reaching those caught in the lie of Islam, those caught in in Buddhism, in, in Jainism, in all of these different philosophical systems, that God would use us and that we'd have a hunger to see Him work. Do you have a hunger to see God work in your life? Or are you so bored hanging out in front of the television all the time and surfing the Internet that you've lost your capacity to be blown away by the things of Almighty God? I pray that God will give us a holy hunger for His glory and His name because God is still working. We might be trusting in His teaching, praying His purpose and then last of all, that we might be working out His will. Working out His will. Look at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And look at verse 21. Go back. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's, it's trusting in His teaching and building our life on it, but that means working out His will. It's doing whatever He delights to have happen. And doing His words here means applying the Sermon on the Mount, living out this Sermon on the Mount. And it's one of the hardest things to do. In fact, we can't do it without the Spirit of God guiding us. Jesus leaves us with a severe weather alert. Are we going to hear it and prepare, or are we going to neglect it to our own destruction? I came across an article that I want to conclude about how Americans respond to severe weather alerts. One expert said, it's concerning. Some people need to see a funnel cloud barreling in the distance before they act, said Fred McMullen of the National Weather Service in in, uh, Moon, a city in Illinois, who monitors regional weather patterns with sophisticated 3D maps on giant computer and television screens, screens. He said that was the case on May 22nd 2011 in joplin missouri when a tornado killed 158 people tornado tornado sirens rang out to warn people about the approach of the monster storm but many ignored the alarms according to the report by the national oceanic and atmospheric administration residents indicated the sirens common in the midwest but not in the east sounded so often that people had become desensitized or complacent he said the problem is convincing people Actually, Dennis Maletti, Professor Emeritus of the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. People simply go through life thinking they're safe. Do you think you're safe? Do you think you're safe from calamity, that that's never going to happen to you? You don't have to worry about God's judgment coming? The only way that we're truly safe is when we have Christ with us and our life built on him. That's the only true safety will have. So we have the option. Do we hear the, the alert, receive it, and respond accordingly? Or do we reject it going about our lives the way that we see fit? I pray that it's the former and not the latter. Then we will know the joy and the blessing of living a life completely devoted to him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, you are the glorious God the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord of the universe, the maker of all that is, was, and ever will be, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. You have created us for a purpose, and that is to glorify and enjoy you. And Lord, we are besieged at every side from within our sinful flesh that seems to plague us day and night or the the temptations of the world around us that seem to be calling us Luring us with temptations of the flesh, just like the sirens in the Odyssey who are luring sailors to their doom through their sweet voices. Lord, many of us are listening to the cry of the, the songs of the world and being drawn accordingly, not realizing that we are going to our death. Lord, may we be able to only hear your voice, the voice of our shepherd. Lord, we are your sheep, the sheep of your pasture. Lord, we have come to you confessing our sins and pleading with you to touch us and use us. And Lord, for those that are here today and they don't have you as a shepherd, Lord, I pray that they might repent of their sins. They might see that you were the one who suffered and died on the cross for their sins, that you, you, you died and rose again for their justification, that they might have forgiveness of sins and new life and purpose and meaning with you. So Lord, please use us for your glory. Help us to increase in joy. And Lord, help us to live out this teaching that we have received in this great, the greatest sermon ever told. That we might go forth change and experience the blessing, your blessing on our lives. So Lord, be with us, speak to us, and use us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.